0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What makes us
1: happy? It's definitely not money. To quote the old saying that old people are always saying, Money can't buy happiness. How very true that is. Oh, you might think money would make you happy, but would it really? Let's say you inherited a billion dollars. You could have a private jet, live in a mansion with a swimming pool, drive a Maserati. You could drive your Maserati into your swimming pool if you felt like it. That's how rich you'd be. But would all that money really make you happy? Would your family and friends really love you anymore? Okay, they probably would, especially if you let them ride in your jet. And if they didn't love you more, you could afford to have them professionally whacked and get a whole new set of family and friends. People would audition to be your friend. I would be
0: one of those people. Dave Berry is a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Miami Herald. He's the author of more books than I can count, more titles than I can say in the entirety of this interview. His most recent novels include Insane City and You Can Date Boys When You're 40, Dave Barry on parenting and other topics he knows very little about. His newest book is Live Right and Find Happiness, but Beer Works Faster. Life Lessons and Other Ravings from Dave Barry. Thanks for joining me, Dave. It's my pleasure. Dave, in this book, you find yourself uh, offering us life lessons. This is a book of transformational wellness, of ways in which we can change ourselves for the better, isn't it?
1: No. No, it's not, Rick. (laughs) But thank you for pretending that it is. (laughs) It's actually, uh, I think all my books should be called like another damn Dave Barry book by Dave Barry or something like that. Um, Because really what happens is, I spend my days writing essays that I think, you know, that are something I think is interesting, think it's funny, and then I present these to the publisher, and they say, "Oh, that's great, but now we need a theme." <clears throat> they tell me this after, you know, I've given them the essays, and I'm like, "Well, there is no theme. These are just things I thought were." So then they they they, they compel me to come up with a theme, and the the one happiness sort of works with this book, um, in one way or another. Most of the essays deal with the concept of happiness or unhappiness. So they called it that because there's a lot of books apparently now in the market about how how to be happy. Of course, there always have been, right? I mean, <clears throat> but anyway, so this book, yeah, to answer your question, is a book of transfer—what did you call it? Transformational wellness, um, very much so,
0: Rick. I totally agree with that. <laughs> uh, you know, we it makes me think that with so many books on happy, on happiness, we must be a pretty unhappy society to need so many books. I know, and,
1: and, it, and it really is one of the topics one of the essays— We are so ridiculously unable to notice that we're happy in this, you know, in modern, the twenty-first century America. Compared with, I mean, even in my lifetime, I'm sixty-seven years old, so I can remember when things were much worse in this country, and in lots of ways, much worse. Uh, And and yet, with every passing day, we manage to convince ourselves, you know, the more information we have, the more tweets we get, the more whatever we get. That we're unhappy, that things are not good, and we need you know, and and I'm sort of becoming more and more convinced that the secret to happiness is just you know shut up about all the stuff that you're worried about you know start just accept that you're not really you don't really have it that bad.
0: Well, I. as an example, one of the things you mentioned is that as children, we used to have drop drills where we were to hide under the desk from nuclear Armageddon.
1: And I know and when I think back, we would not tell our children I would never tell my kids today, by the way, we could have a bomb land around here. It's gonna pretty much wipe everyone out. And if you live you'll you know there'll be radiation which is what they told us when we were when I was in like third and fourth grade. And we go, oh, yeah, we might have a bomb, you know. And we talked about it. We joked about it, the H-bomb, you know. Um, but it's, we don't have that now. We're not worried about that now. We're worried about, okay, we are worried about some things that are important, like um, global climate change. But it, it's like you're not going to tell your kid to jump under the desk to, to avoid global climate change. You know, what you're t- generally talking about decades or centuries there. Um, that's a long time under a desk. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. Do you think, <laughs> would a desk even work? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they, we should go back and get those desks. And just, you know what you know what we could do? Put a giant desk over the earth. So, would that work? Protect us from, or? It might, who knows? Or we could take the evil carbon emitting corporations and put them under a desk, a giant desk.
0: That might work. That sounds like a plan to me. You know, uh, one of the things that, uh, I thought was, was really fun about this book is there are a couple of themes and one of them is sports and soccer uh, from a couple of different perceptions. Uh, you you t- write about David Beckham but also you just talk about your discovery of soccer as a, as a fun
1: sport. Yeah, I, I love soccer. I have come to become a huge fan of soccer um, but I didn't start out that way. I started out like most Americans. I played soccer in, you know, in, in gym class in, when I was in like, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh, and, and we did, apply, I guess it was a form of soccer in that we did sometimes kick the ball, but generally the point of kicking the ball when we played it was not to do anything tactical with the ball. It was just to get the ball out of your area so you could go back <laughs> to standing around. That was mainly what we viewed soccer as, standing around. And, um, and then later on, my kids played soccer, but it was, it was uh, my daughter plays what's called club soccer, travel soccer which means that uh, every weekend you get in a car and drive 200 miles with your child to play some other kids who have also driven 200 miles, sometimes starting in the same place you did. And the reason for that is you have to get to somewhere where it's raining really hard and there's a chance of being killed by lightning. That's sort of the essence of travel soccer. If we ever get serious about ending the drought uh, here in California, just schedule my daughter's soccer team for a tournament here and it will rain way more than you want. But anyway, in the course of um, you know learning about soccer from that perspective, I started seeing it on a much different level because my wife, uh, Michelle Kaufman, is a soccer writer for the, uh, the Miami Herald, and so she goes to the World Cup, which is a whole different level of soccer. And when I, when I started seeing that, I, the first World Cup I went to was 1998 in Paris, and then um, I've been to a couple since. Uh, and I came to love it. First of all, the, the, the spectacle of the World Cup is unbelievable. It's not, unlike any party. You, you want to see, like, literally millions of people getting drunk. You go to a World
0: Cup. Let know? me mention, too, that another theme in this book is partying. But we'll partying, get back yes, to that. We'll get back to the soccer There's here. no
1: party like the World Cup party. Um, people like team, like, like the teams come, of course, because they have to. But they're fans. Like Scotland. In France in 1998, the Scottish fans were there, and they all wore kilts. The men did, and they they do and they do not in fact wear underwear under kilts. And you will learn that if you go to the World Cup because they are constantly demonstrating that fact. <laughs> and the Scottish team got eliminated early, but I don't think the Scottish fans knew that. <laughs> they probably some of them still wandering around Paris, you know, uh, 17 years later later. Um, still rooting for their team. That's how drunk those people were. Those are very entertaining. But the actual game, the sport, the soccer is, is marvelous. Although there are elements of it that Americans dislike. And I, I will agree, like the tendency to dive, as I say in the book, um, there are members of the Italian team who spent so much time on the ground, to be le- legally uh, classified as zucchini. Um, but the the level of skill is phenomenal, and so I I, I sort read right of it's kind of a defense of the sport of soccer in this book and why I've come
0: to love it. I thought you did a fabulous job as a sports writer describing soccer. I always look at it as with any sports, I lack the sports gene. So sports to me are kind of like math to some people. Mm-hmm. But I've always looked at soccer and been incredibly confused. But when I read your description, I thought it was really lucid and it made it seem really interesting. Ha, you felt, are you Scottish, Mike? No. <laughs> <is it? laughs> no, but I thought that uh, you, so um, I guess you've been picking up some sports writing tips from your wife then.
1: Yeah, no, she has she totally sold me on soccer as, as a sport.
0: Now, um, you, in your introduction, you, you talk about you know the, this idea of happiness and, and um, how we should be happy, because uh, you know, we really live in one of the best uh, of all possible times. And I think one of the things you do really well here, one of the, the tricks you use, is, is you kind of have this, sometimes this mad logic. You take, these, uh, you take an argument and you take it to a mad, logical extreme, And, and that sounds like that's really fun. Good, I have no idea what you're talking about, I, well, I <laughs> well, when you were talking, I could about, not agree more. Well, when you were talking about, in your reading, for example, is a great example of mad logic, where um, money can't buy happiness, but yes, it can. Wait uh, a minute, yes, <laughs> it can.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or my mom had, used to have this wonderful saying, um, uh, my mom was a very cynical human being, she would say, son, and she would say this in you know, the manner of a homespun wisdom, hard, harder, and she'd say, son, it's better to be rich and happy than poor and sick. <laughs> <laughs> I live by those words.
0: I I say that's the case. Uh, you take us directly into a picture of yourself in high school.
1: Yes, I um I'm trying to explain. And this is an essay called um, "Bite Me, David Beckham," which is part of the whole. No, it's not actually. That's one of the one of the soccer related essays in the book. Um, and I and I say "Bite Me, David Beckham" because I'm insecure about my appearance, and I I have in my in the in the book. A, a photograph to illustrate why because I think your image of yourself is formed in your youth and particularly in your middle school high school years when you would like to start dating you would like to have girls be attracted to you if you were me anyway um, and I, I looked like a complete d- dweeb I mean and there's a picture of me in my, uh, my high school yearbook photo uh, class of 1965 Pleasantville High School Pleasantville, New York and it's not like it was a bad day that's the best I could look in 1965. And I have these uh, Soviet Union style eyeglasses that my mom got at Macy's. I called them the you will die a virgin model uh, <laughs> glasses. And then my hair, I have this uh, hideous haircut. It, it just doesn't, my hair was all through my youth. My hair looked ridiculous because my dad cut my hair. Um, and he this was a great a- guy, my dad. He was a Presbyterian minister good, and a good man. But the training to be a Presbyterian minister, at no point do they ever teach you how to cut hair. It's all theological, and and um, so my dad, he got these clippers, electric clippers at the drugstore, and I agree with the politicians who say we should get assault rifles out of the hands of Americans. But first, let's get their clippers. Let's take because they're not protected by the Second Amendment. People like my dad should not have, you know, should not keep and bear clippers. So I had, so I just I looked ridiculous, and that's that was the image I had. Um, and
0: did you ever get a hole in your hair? I, yes. My dad cut my hair, and I one time turned my head, and there's like a it, perfect yeah. hole in the, in in the, the side. Kind of just, it's
1: kind of like it looks like a you know like he, he, had, a, he had like a piece taken out of an apple. Yeah, it's a, yeah, and usually it's in the back, you can't see it, but everyone else can see it. Everyone else could see it. Yeah, Rick. Yeah, Well my dad would hair? do it like he would he would like it's you know at a real barbershop, shop they're you know, they're looking at a mirror I don't know there's there's a way they can tell that they're doing to both sides of your head at the same time my dad would like do one side completely and then he'd walk around and from memory try to make the other side and then he'd go back around oh I said and then yeah you know, I ended up like gradually losing almost all of my my hair so I was I didn't look great and um and you know always people would say well you know other qualities that girls look for in boys, but they really weren't. In, in high school, they look for cuteness. Like, I, w- I had other qualities. I was really sarcastic in high school. I'm, I went entire years without ever saying anything that wasn't basically the opposite of what I thought. But you will never hear a high school girl say about a boy in a dreamy voice, he's so sarcastic. You know, that's not what they're looking for. <laughs> no, so, anyway, that I guess I should explain why that is in the this essay is about David Beckham. Um, David Beckham, who many people, including I think my wife, considered to be a very hot man, um, is trying to start a soccer team, bring a major league soccer franchise to the city of Miami. So he's wooing the city, wooing the politicians, wooing the public, and wooing the media. And the main media person he's wooing happens to be Michelle Kaufman, sports, uh, sports writer for the Miami Hero Cover Soccer, who's my wife. And so da- she gets Phone calls from David Beckham's people all the time. David would like to see you. David wants to meet When he sees her, he hugs her and gives her a little European-style kiss. Um, she got an email once from his people saying, David would love to have a one-on-one with you. That's <laughs> you know, like, that's my wife. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, bite me, David Beckham. I know you're listening, David. Get get out of, get, Stay away from my wife. You know,
0: uh, you, you do a— uh, uh, uh Get, Get it out, Rick.
1: You, <laughs> you have a sentence in there. So. there is
0: somewhere. It's, a, it's underneath the Lincoln Memorial, which, it, which is what you used as a metaphor for uh, explaining your jumping Oh, yeah, ability. yeah. I went out for the, when I was in high school because
1: I, you know, the girls, they didn't go for sarcasm, but they did like, they liked cute boys and they liked athletes. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I never would have played on a football team. I would have been just a little smear on the locker room floor had I but So I went out for the track team because there's lots of events in track, you know, and I thought there'd be something that I could do that would get me a letter. And I could, you know, have a letter and be, get a pep rally. And so I went out for uh, the long jump, which I think that back then was called the broad jump. Well, I did that because it was the least activity involved that I knew of at track. You ran a very short distance and tried to jump as far as you could into this pit, sawdust pit. Except I had the same basic while leaping ability as the Lincoln Memorial and I mean I'm, apparently there's I'm not you know a physicist but d- different people have different levels of gravitational attraction and I have a lot I have tremendous <laughs> gravitational attraction so I couldn't really get off the ground let alone you know all the way into the
0: sawdust pit so that did not work out didn't work out that gravitational uh, attraction uh, theory explains what I, what I see on the scale every day. That could be uh, it. You I, might I, have that I, same problem I, I have. Yeah, yeah. It has nothing to
1: do with the Snickers. It
0: has nothing to do with that double cheeseburger and no. Tommy's. No, not at all. You know, uh, I, I guess I have to say that for all the uh, – probably unhappiness you had in high school. You you were elected class clown. I those was, people knew what the hell they were on they,
1: about. Yeah, those Pleasantville people, they could spot talent a mile away. Yes, I was elected class clown, class of 1965. Um, and I—and it's funny because I was something of a wise-ass in, in uh, high school. You, I, maybe you'll be surprised to hear that. And I was elected class clown, but I was also told more than once by more than one teacher— yeah, you know that's that's all well and good. It's very funny, but you cannot joke your way through life. I was told that, but it turns out you can joke your way through life because that's been my career. <laughs> Unless someday, you know, like the seriousness seriousness police come to my house or something and say you've been joking your way through life. You know, we we you need to do you have to build a house or something. You have to do something productive. Well, uh, you write
0: about houses in this book. I do. And, and, and say, well. Nice segue, Rick. Nice a- and well, I think, because as a homeowner myself, I had to learn the hard way to always call the man in the truck. Excuse me. Yes. I, um, I used to
1: believe you could do it yourself, and I have learned you can't. Although there are, there's large, powerful institutions um, that are trying to convince Americans, even as we speak, that they can do things themselves. I speak of the Home Depot Corporation and Lowe's, which run these commercials on TV, where there's a happy homeowner couple. They're at Home Depot and they're looking at like tile samples. This is like in a 30-second commercial. In the first five, they're looking at tile sa- samples. Then there's like a five-second montage where they're wearing safety glasses and screwing a screw into something. And then boom! There's a whole new kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> And that is not the way it works. I mean, that's really serious. So people actually believe they can do things um, themselves. And I, I propose in the book, um, as an antidote to that, I call it reality-based hardware stores, where these would be stores where the employees would be specially trained and if and a homeowner comes in and wants to do a do yourself project. These reality-based hardware employees are, are trained to talk you out of it. That's their, their job. Uh, but I, So I, I subscribe to, as you say, the guy in a truck system of if your house breaks, you call a guy in a truck. And I describe the process that you go through, and it's not a good one, if you, especially if you're me, if you're a humor writer. Because t- my typical day, I work at home, and when I'll be working, it may not look like work. I'll be looking at my computer screen, and on it might be a Japanese game show uh, where this actually happened to me when a guy came with a the truck. There's, there's guys in, Japanese guys in their underpants falling into this giant vat of mud. For some Gap Japanese game show reason, I don't know. So this guy comes in, and there—that's what I'm doing. You know, he's got a truck. He could build a house if he wanted to. You know, he could—I don't know—install a sump pump, whatever that is. Um, so, and th- there's two phases to the guy in the truck that are hideously embarrassing for the homeowner, especially if it's a male who's already insecure about his masculinity. The first is he always asks you a question, some questions. The guy in the truck, like he'll always say, um, "Mr. Barry, uh, can you tell me where your defranchelation module is?" And, you know, like well, if I knew that, why well, wouldn't have called you, Mr. Guy? In a drug. And, and so then there's that. And then he goes away. And then the worst part is when he comes back and he says, uh, Mr. Barry, can I show you something? They always want to show you something. They always and do. You don't want to, whatever it is, you don't <laughs> want to see it. Because it's never a good thing. He never goes and points to something and says, you see that? That's exactly the way that should look. That's not going to cost you a nickel, Mr. Barry. That's never what he has to say. It's always... You know, see this, and then he tells you all the reasons it's bad and shouldn't have been done that way. And I always want to say, I was probably done by a guy with a truck, is what happened. So
0: that's that's um, that's why I don't like uh,
1: I don't like owning homes. But what what choice
0: do we have? Uh, yeah, you can rent them, and yeah. as a, as a landlord, that's even worse because then you have to call the guy on the truck for somebody else and go over there and stand around and take responsibility for whatever else. Might have been there. Okay. Well, I'm not do that. I'm w- I'm recommending you avoid <laughs> that that scenario. You know, there are a couple of letters to your children in here, and and this is something you've done before too. And I'm wondering if when you dial this out into the long run, someday your children will be adults, and and they may actually be inclined at by that point in their lives to read if they manage to transfer books to video games or 3D immersive multiplayer online games, and I'm wondering if you've thought if about. Yeah. I worry? Yeah. What do
1: you well, I've <laughs> told them um, my children. I've written about my children, uh, both my son Rob, who's now now he's a dad himself. I'm um, a grandfather, and my daughter Sophie. I I made the same deal with both of them, which is. Um, if I write about you and you, you don't want me, me to print it, well, I won't print it. And then someone else can pay for your college education. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> this, is what, this is what daddy does for a living here. <laughs> so, no, I've always, I've, they, my kids have always been aware, you know, that occasionally I will mention, describe them, discuss them. But they, they've both been pretty cool with it. The only real, um, the, the low point was years ago I picked my son up at middle school in the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, which wasn't really writing about him but was using him for, as fodder for a column. it like the low – you know, you're already – in middle school, you're already embarrassed enough that your parents even exist, let alone having your dad show up in a giant hot dog, you know, with a loudspeaker going, Rob Berry, please report to the Wienermobile. Uh, <laughs> And that
0: Wienermobile
1: shows up again. It shows you up got again.
0: Multi-purpose. That thing's got some legs. It
1: does. Uh, yeah. Because okay, we're jumping all. Up. Nobody who listens to this podcast will have any idea what this book is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's good because I just want to read it. We but, hope.
1: <laughs> but another one, another essay in there is about a trip I took to Russia. I went to Russia um, with Ridley Pearson uh, last fall. Uh, Ridley Pearson's a, a, a author and friend of mine. We co-wrote some t- young adult fiction books. And the U.S. State Department sent us to Russia as part of a program where they send authors to Russia in hopes of improving relations between the two <laughs> countries. That sure didn't work. Yeah, I guess, well. good yeah, Lord, like, we're practically uh, at war now. Us, they send us to Iran, you know. <laughs> so anyway, we went, to, went there, and, and it was interesting. It was really interesting. But um, it was kind of hard for me to explain what I do over there. They don't really have the equivalent of me in Russia. They don't have – they don't – you know they, they take writing more seriously they do have humor but they don't have like wacky newspaper people and and so, but I was trying to you know say this is the kind of stuff I do and write columns about and we had a picture a slide of me um, with the Wienermobile and Rob and and I'm like the wheel I'm you know my sticking my arm out the window I'm, I'm with this giant hot dog and Rob is standing there looking sheepish and the they don't, Russians that don't have wienermobiles so they have no Wienermobile. <laughs> So I'm, I'd be looking at this audience, and I'm talking to them through an interpreter trying to get across. This is meant to be funny. I can see this look of complete puzzlement on their faces looking at this giant hot dog with me driving it. And I know they're thinking, like, how the hell did we lose the Cold War to these people? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know that trip was was really interesting to read about because you guys were shadowed by by you know uh, the Russian government and
1: yeah they told the State Department told us because <clears throat> relations are really pretty awful right <clears throat> excuse me between us and Russia and they warned us that we might even be accosted by by some kind of uniform people over there and even possibly detained and. um so we didn't get detained, but uh, we the the first day we were in Moscow, uh, first day we were in Russia in Moscow, uh, we had this incident where we're walking along in a kind of crowd of people on the sidewalk, and these three guys, two of them in uniform and one of them in an overcoat suit, step out toward us, just three big guys, and just glare at us. Not anybody else there, were like dozens of people around. They were clearly trying to intimidate us. They didn't say anything. I thought they were gonna stop us because it was that, it was that intense. Um, they, but they glare at us and they, they step towards us and, and then we we just keep walking. And I said to Ridley, what was that about? And he goes, I don't know. And then he says, we, it happened to us again. I didn't notice it the second time. And then there were other instances where we began to realize that, that we were, that. They were probably listening in our to our rooms. You know, Ridley found various evidence, and they kept trying to hack into his computer. Probably mine too, but I wouldn't know. Um, but I do feel if they were hacking into my if they were listening in my room, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a happy <laughs> job for them because uh, not to I don't want to get too explicit here, but um, don't eat if you ever go to Russia. This is my one piece of advice: don't eat the Mexican food. <laughs> I went, we went to a. A Mexican restaurant, don't ask me why. It was close to our hotel and we were tired. And they just don't have a flair for Mexican food. (laughs) And so I ate what I later came to realize must have been a weaponized chimichanga. And I got a case of global thermonuclear diarrhea. And anybody who was listening in on my hotel (laughs) room, I I apologize to that person, whoever that person was. That was probably not a pleasant wasn't experience for that person.
0: Well, you met the U.S. ambassador to Russia, too. We
1: did. We were the first uh, people to visit uh, Ambassador John Teft in his, uh, the residence is called Spaso House, which is this unbelievable, beautiful mansion in Moscow. And um, he, yeah, he has just got the job, very difficult job. Um, The Russians don't care for him. You know, they kind of respect him, but they're not fond of him. And They don't make it easy to be uh, an American diplomat over there. And so he's this great guy, down-to-earth, sports fan from, you know, uh, Wisconsin, you know, kind of like a beer-drinking regular guy. There he is. He's in the middle of Moscow dealing with the Russians. It's It's a little intimidating to think about.
0: Now you talk about drinking beer, let's dial back to your parents' parties, yeah, I remember my parents' parties too. They were nothing like yours. Your parents were having some fun loving people they were i
1: it's my. this is an essay called the real Mad Men, and it is um talking about the the difference in my between my parents' generation when they became parents and raising families. Versus my generation when we became parents. I mean, we were the wild and crazy baby boomers until we became parents, and then we became you know the, the super nannies that we are today, where we don't we don't let our kids do anything without our supervision, and we don't you know we're very careful about our own lives. We want to live forever. We want to, you know. Where's my turn parents, ourselves into surveillance drones? <laughs> yes, and but we're also like you know obsessed with our own health. Um, and my parents were not. Um, they were. They had been through the Depression and World War II, and they were now finally, you know, making it. They were doing okay. I'm talking about in the 50s. And they partied. They, you know, My parents, I, I lived in Westchester County, New York, which is where the Mad Men thing was set. And they were, uh, they had these giant, wild parties, Friday, Saturday night. Um, you know, I mean, not, like, not, not, orgy like but just they smoked they drank they ate gluten these people
0: oh my god now i know trust I know. me i know Open. all about gluten now. So, hey you want to do
1: some gluten you uh. know? <laughs> and and they they didn't worry about us you know like that we put us to bed and now we're gonna party and they had a uh, scavenger hunt parties musical party dance they did all these things into their 40s that my generation just we just didn't do we stopped having that kind of you know, we worry too much to do anything. We certainly aren't going to smoke. We're not going to drink too much. And we can't. We can't drive when we just. So you know, like, and I'm not saying it's it's good that they drunk and drove, but they did. You know, they just didn't worry about it. There's, they didn't worry about where we were. You know, they they didn't have uh, supervise our every second the way we do with our kids. Like, <laughs> go go out and play. You know, be back by June. That was that was the attitude of my parents. Uh, somebody not long ago just had a good way of putting it, it said. Um, we worry if our kids are having fun, and my parents, the, the parents, our parents, worried about whether they were having fun. They still wanted to have fun, I guess is the point. Whereas we kind of give up on it, I think.
0: Well, and that's certainly re, uh, reflected in Mad Men, a show that many people love and admire. I, my wife was a big fan. I've tried to watch it, and it's just like the dower hour.
1: Yeah, well, that's what sort of set me off. I thought. I totally got—I love Man Man. I think it's a wonderful show, but nobody's having any fun on that show. And I, I'm thinking, like, that isn't really what I remember. I I was there. I was in Armont, New York. My dad had friends who were advertising executives. just like, And they were not dour people. They they enjoyed themselves. I mean, it's not that they didn't have problems or everything, but they really were able to, to kind of have fun and cut loose when they wanted to.
0: Oh, you uh, write um, a great satire of—, of- a madman. And I think one of the things I realize is that, you know, satire, it's the sincerest form of saying that one man's treasure is another man's trash. And, and the more treasured it is, the more I want to demonstrate the many ways in which it is trash. Okay. <laughs> I don't agree with that, Rick. Whatever. <laughs> you seem to be having a lot of fun with that. And you do write a lot of satire. Throughout oh, right. Yeah. Part. I
1: do write a little satire where, where Don Draper. Not
0: pretty much every woman who comes into the room, he has sex with her, unless, of course, it's his wife. You also have fun uh, talking about the the advertising of that period, which oh, is man. completely uh, crazy.
1: Well, I think Madman Madman uh, the one the one question it answers is why was the advertising in in that came out of the 50s so stupid and the answer is the people who were making it were really drunk most of the time like hey i got an idea let's put a guy in a t- rowboat in the toilet tank Hey, little, tidy bowl. yeah yeah you,
0: you know uh one of those letters you were talking about was a letter to your daughter uh, um about getting her driver's license and i'm this is something I think every parent is terrified by, mostly by virtue of the fact that you recall your own years as an early driver. Yeah, I um,
1: well, I've I've for years commented on how um, bad the driving is in Florida, particularly Miami. Um, my theory being that everyone there is driving according to the law of his or her individual country of origin, um, and and then in and addition, the map of it. <laughs> then we also have. Um, Seniors, a lot of senior citizens, and and um, as I describe in the book, there's some of them drive by what I call the seeing eye wife method, where the man is driving the car, as he's sitting at the steering wheel and operating controls, but the woman, his wife, sitting next to him, is, to, is the one who actually can see, and he he drives because it's the man's job to drive. God darn it, but 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 she's the one who can actually see, so so it's like she's a yeah, and I've been in cars like this. And Hurry! the arrow is green, it's green arrow, green arrow. No, 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 yellow, no, no. You know, that, that, that's the driving system. So anyway, my, my daughter, Sophie, is going to go out onto those streets, and I say, you're going to deal with a lot of bad drivers, but you will be one of them because you're a teenager, and teenagers are idiots. And I acknowledge that I, myself, was an idiot teenager driver, but I had a safety uh, element that she does not have, which is I drove... My mom's nineteen sixty one Plymouth Valiant station wagon, which is the slowest vehicle ever constructed. It would it reached its top speed on the assembly line and never got <laughs> any faster than that. And so you could stomp down on the accelerator on a Plymouth Valiant and it would not start moving for several days. You know, mature trees could get out of the way of the Valiant. So it's it was a safe safe car. If my daughter could drive a Valiant, I'd be fine with it. But she's not. She's gonna be in a real car on those
0: streets. Yeah, I got a 1968 Plymouth Oldsmobile. Plymouth Oldsmobile. Huh? It was a, You just made that up because there's no such thing as a Plymouth Oldsmobile. Oh, well, it, was, it was an Oldsmobile station wagon. It was the last uh, set of cars made before smog checks came in. It had a 428. It was. Like oh, you had a fast car. It was like a race car. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was bad for me to have that. I, I, took, well, it I took. I took years for me to. Kill for a w- Plymouth Oldsmobile. <laughs> 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 I, I had the Valiant. <laughs> Now, uh, you also write uh, – one of the things I think you do very well is to mix uh, humor and, and sentiment. It's a hard thing to do, but I think you say really authentic and sweet things that are also really funny. And I think the the way you finish out the book with uh, the letter to your oh, – to, to Dylan. Your, to grandson is both hilarious and, and – Terrorizingly flinching for any male who happens to read it, but there you go. Yeah, it was I. Uh, I became a grandfather. Dylan Maxwell
1: Barry was born last May, and um, <clears throat> so I wrote a letter to him, and uh, it begins discussing how we actually. My first involvement with him was was the uh, his bris, <laughs> which was not what I pictured. Um, you know, you, when you're a grandfather, you picture your, your grandfather grandson activities like fishing. You know, <laughs> not, not that. But a bris is like, a, well, it's a Jewish ceremony, ritual circumcision of an 8 year, 8 eight-day-old child, um, and then there are deli platters. That's the that's the uh, that's the the, the ritual, um, and so I talk about where the how that came about in the Bible, um, which is because I I was asked to be part of this ceremony. I was asked to be what's called the sandek, which is the person who holds the baby's legs when the baby's being circumcised by the Moil, which is the Hebrew word for snipper, and um, so I looked in the Bible, to see what you know what, where this came from, uh, and basically, God came to Abraham when Abraham was 99 years old, and 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 tells him, that this is God for you. He tells him he, he he tells him that he he says you're going to be the patriarch of of the Jewish people. You're going to be the you know the forefather of kings, you're going to get the land of Canaan, which is the biblical term for what we now call Long Island. Um, but as a token of the covenant between us, um, I want you to circumcise yourself and everyone in your household and all your male uh, ancestors, or um, not ancestors, um, you know, progeny. So this is a 99-year-old man, God is telling he's got to circumcise himself. Um, and I'm thinking like, why? why couldn't they just shake hands? You know? <laughs> Why does it have to be that? Um, and so anyway, that was my first interaction with Dylan, was, was the, uh, the, uh, the Briss. Um, and then I wrote, I wrote a letter t- telling him all the wisdom I've acquired in my, my 67 years of life. And I wanted to tell him things that I really thought were true and useful. And I, I'm, the only thing I could come up with that I was really, really sure of is that you don't need to refrigerate ketchup and mustard. Um, really? Yes, you don't. I do. I know, many people do, and no offense, you're a moron. <laughs> Walk in any restaurant, and where's the ketchup and mustard? It's on the table. It's sitting on a table, it's been there for decades um, at room temperature by definition, and it's perfectly fine, it's perfectly safe. You don't need to do that. So that that was the one piece of wisdom I really. And then the rest, there's various other things like. Um, just other little things I've learned, like if you really want a woman to love you, do not get her a gift with a plug.
0: I you know? thought that was a, such a. I mean, God, why? I wish I'd been told that many years I know. ago. I, I know. I, it took and, me a long time to figure it out. You and um, but but now I know. You you also write about uh, traveling to Brazil. Now. I can't believe that they make it so difficult. I mean, that's really wild. Yeah, they, well, it's there. You to get you have to get a visa mm-hmm. in
1: in Miami, anyway. The way that you get the visa from this lady who really doesn't want to give you a visa, like her job is, you know, whatever you bring to her, whatever document you have, she'll say like, uh, "Now I'm going to need the liner notes for the 1963 Herman's Hermits album." You know, running around London, whatever you know, whatever you bring her, it's never what what they really want. Um, but we finally got, we finally got the visa to go to. And the reason for that, by the way, is that we make it hard for the Brazilians to come here. So both countries are working hard to keep people from spending money in the other one, I guess. I don't know what the, what the point of it is. But I, um, I got a visa, and my daughter and I went down to, to join my wife, who was already down there covering the World Cup. And <clears throat> when I would tell people in Miami that I was going to Brazil, uh, they all said the same thing, and all the guidebooks said the same thing, which is, Brazil is a beautiful country. Do not wear jewelry, you know, or you're going to love Brazil. <clears throat> Do not carry money, or carry a little bit of money in a, you know, in your outer pocket to give them when they when they rob you at knife point, you know. Hide your real money somewhere else, um, and you get the feeling from the guidebooks and people in general. That the major industry in is, in Brazil is robbing Americans at knife point. So when I got there, I had I purchased all these special garments that had pockets hidden. I you know I had money everywhere, money in my groin, um, and you know, I, and I had um, I had a little wad of money on the you know to ready to give them. And if anybody had come anywhere near me, any Brazilian, I would have thrown the money at it. If a dog had come and toward me, and not, it didn't happen. Nothing ever happened. We, my, my daughter and I were all over Rio and, and other parts of Brazil, not always in nice neighborhoods. We never had any trouble. The people were couldn't have been sweeter. And it became a joke between me and, and Sophie um, that if you, if you wanted to make money as an American, you know, let's say you're a young college student looking to make some money, go to Brazil and rob American tourists. <laughs> <laughs> they're ready to give you the money. If they're like us, when they get off the plane, they're ready with their wad of money. To, you know, just show them a knife. You know, or even just show them a receipt for a knife, and they'll they'll give you the money.
0: Just a little, you know, career advice from me to you. you know, uh, I obviously I need <laughs> I spend so much of my time working for free. You know, uh, you did talk a little bit about uh, driving in the state of Florida, but I think the state of Florida uh, really, in, you know, inspires a lot of your work because it has. They combine so many extremes so inelegantly. Yes, uh, Florida.
1: Yes, it does. It's not a, elegant is not a word I'd ever <laughs> used to describe state of Florida. Um, yeah, it's Florida's been. It's a gold mine if you're if you're a writer. I mean, the num the the number of writers that working in Florida, coming out of Florida, writing about Florida, um, it's huge because they're just endless. It's a plot, you know, factory. Florida is. There's, you know, there's 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 weirdness, there's criminality, there's venality, there's just, there's nature in the form of giant snakes. There's a lot of stuff going on in Florida that isn't going on like Ohio. No well, offense to Ohio, but, it, you know, it's boring
0: compared to Florida. Well, I mean, I, I got to say that as a guy who in many ways never pre- progressed past 12 years old, living in a state where lizards come into your house all the time, all the time. that's like a paradise. We, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you get— are they to my big? wife? My
1: wife. We, we do have lizards. I, and if you if you live in Miami, you're just you you have got to be used to lizards because there are billions of lizards, and they do get in the house. And they're often like you'll see them on the on the ceiling. You wake up and I, I've had this happen. I don't know how many times. I wake up in the morning, look up and then right over my head, it's a lizard upside down on the ceiling, giving you that look. They have like you know, hey, maybe while you were sleeping, I pooped in your mouth. You don't know, you know. <laughs> but my wife. Even though she's from Miami, and you would think we would be useless, to, cannot stand uh, the idea there are lizards in the house. There are always lizards in the house. and my wife. So it is my responsibility. We, the way we divide our household responsibilities up, my wife is responsible for food, for clothing, for anything involving human relationships of any kind. Uh, you know, friendships, relatives, anything like that. Any social life and whatever. Um, anything involving decor or or. Um, anything like that. She's responsible for those things. I am responsible for lizards. If we see a lizard in the house, I mean, if she sees a lizard, it's my job to get rid of it. And so I've come up with a, a system. I call it the pretend system. Don't tell my wife for getting rid of it. Which is I get some Tupperware. I get a Tupperware container, a good sturdy cup, Tupperware container. And um, <clears throat> I get the best results with the 8-ounce bowl. I mean, you're, you, you use whatever's comfortable for you. And then I, I go to where the lizard, lizard is <clears throat> and For the record, lizards have been around several million years, and they didn't last this long by being slow, okay? They're much faster than we are. You cannot catch a lizard. I can't, anyway. But I I approach the lizard, and then I go, bang, and slam the cup Tupperware container down on the floor where it used to be. It's no longer there, of course. As soon as it saw me coming miles away, and it's off laughing with the other lizard and exchanging uh, high fives, or high fours, I think. Lizards don't have five. I don't know. And... And meanwhile, but I've got the Tupperware container on the floor, and then I, I make a big show of like picking it up in a certain way, running to the door, and opening the door and pretending to throw the lizard out. Now, while the door is open, like seven more lizards get into the house. Don't tell my wife. But anyway, that's the system I've been using. Um,
0: now, how big are these lizards?
1: They're not big. They're like two inches, three inches long. They're little. Oh, dog. And they don't do anything. They're, they don't bite. <laughs> <laughs> but my wife, my wife, I tell her, like, "Why do you care? They don't. They're not ever gonna. You know, they don't come. They don't do anything to people." she Said the lizard doesn't get hurt you. And she and I and I asked her once, "Why are you afraid of them?" And she, she said, "This is true." She said, "I'm afraid they're gonna run across my face while I'm sleeping." And I said to her, "Why?" And this is an absolutely true conversation. Why would a lizard run across your face? And she said, without a trace of irony. To get to the other
0: side, (laughs) she didn't appreciate when I laughed at that. But she did admit that was
1: pretty funny for her.
0: Well, now, uh, also too, we were talking a little bit about parties, and I think parties as a form kind of a theme in this book, and are certainly a way to transform your life into wellness, and they generally involve beer. And so as a means of transformational tra- wellness, wellness what, I, yeah. I think, yeah, so I think that we're looking at a book that described parties as a as a key uh, way to achieve transformational wellness, to achieve happiness. I could not
1: agree more. Parties, at least... I don't know about transformational wellness, but feeling good while the party's lasting anyway. <laughs> yeah. Does that count?
0: You know? Yeah, I, I think so. I think but unfortunately, I think most of the transformation happens after, in the morning when you're waking up afterwards. Oh,
1: I, I do re- refer to an incident during my party days uh, that, where, I don't know if you call this transformational wellness, but it was certainly transformational. Um, it started with Singapore slings, and it ended um, with us, a group of us painting a horse red. Which I won't go into why that had happened. I mean, and we did use a water-based paint. I don't want anybody to... You're riffing on Steinbeck. What, really? The Red the, Pony. The Red Pony. No, way well, I can't really say we were, to be honest. <laughs> but but so that was transformational for the horse. It became a red horse briefly. And then, you know, um, then they washed it off and it was no, it was back to its original kind of dull gray color, but... Does that count as transforming? I don't know.
0: I, I think it, it transformed the health. It And I just want to say I,
1: I'm sorry. I did that. I regret it. I was I was young and stupid, and I apologize to the horse if it's listening, and I'm sure it is.
0: Now, uh, when you're putting these together, uh, how do you know when you've reached a uh, critical mass? You mean how do I know when it's you can, done, or yeah. how do I know when it's
1: worth doing? Uh, those are both good questions. Why don't you answer them both? Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, well, the worth doing, it usually, you know, can take like, it can take me like two or three days of typing away at one paragraph before I can decide whether I really w- want to write an essay on that topic. Um, and then if it starts to build, you know, and I can think, oh, okay, this could go here, this could go here. When I'm talking about Brazil, I could talk about soccer. When I talk about soccer, I could talk about when I played soccer in college, you know, and intramural soccer. And, you know, that where there's enough facets, and then I'll decide it's good. And then when it's done, that's always a hard question with humor uh, because you don't want to overdo it. You know, you want to leave people still kind of interested or still amused. Um, And, you know, just the feel you develop over over decades of writing humor where you think now it's done, now it's done.
0: Well, I think, uh, too, it's really fun in this book the way you can uh, start with one topic and or start with the title, and I think the the "bite me, David Beckham" is a perfect example. We get this title that's David Beckham, and then we get you in high school, mm-hmm. and I think the way you write through that and then do the pivot to David Beckham in the present is it's really uh, clever and crafty.
1: Ha! Crafty is the word you're using.
0: Yeah, transformationally crafty. Yes, transformationally crafty. Yeah, it's transformational. yeah you, well, you wreck you. Uh, uh, a transformation upon the story itself is wrought by virtue of your ability to do that pivot, and you. I think that pivot is a, a one of your styles. Sometimes you do it within a sentence. Sometimes you do it within the whole essay. Yeah, I, I, that's. I kind of. I think that if, if there's any
1: humor device that I learned from a master, it would be from Robert Benchley, who who did a lot of that. Um, he was a master of. Um, just shifting gears, you know, sudden turns, um, judo, I call it, where you, you, you're leaning one way and all of a sudden he's talking about something completely different. Um, and I like that because readers don't expect it, you know. The worst thing humor can be is predictable. Um, if people already get the joke before you've told it, you know, you really haven't done your job, and a lot of humor fails on that um, grounds and... Or on the ground of like you, you make a joke and then you're kind of making the same joke over and over again, mild variations on it. Well, that was something you did with Dick Cheney. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another example of um, alcohol not always being the best friend of humor. Um, yeah, I went to a, I was at a, invited to a uh, function at the Washington Post. It was a, a cartoonist's dinner they used to do. Uh, Kay Graham, the former owner, publisher of the Washington Post, used to hold his party and it was all cartoonists except for Ted Koppel and me. And then there was always a, and a couple of post executives. And then uh, they would have. Uh, well, always, Ted
0: Koppel and you, they're the like, psycho. I know, like, I know. Ted and me. <laughs> Ted, He's
1: a very funny guy, actually, Ted Koppel. Um, the, and, and, and then there would be a, um, there would always be a high level government. Pol- oh, there'd be a politician, you know. One year it was Jack Kemp. And anyway, and there's a couple of others. I don't remember, but one year it was Dick Cheney when he was the Secretary of Defense um, under uh, the first George Bush presidency. And um, so he's there, and he's Secretary of Defense, and it's a small group. It's a couple dozen people. And I introduced myself to him, and then I don't, you know, you just, you, hey. And then a little bit later, I kind of, I kind of half forgot that I'd already introduced myself, but I, and, I, and I introduced myself to him again yeah, you, know, you stick your hand out, and then and he, you know, you kind of automatically he sticks his hand out, and then you both. We both realize, oh God, we already did this, you know. But it was you know embarrassing enough? But then I thought I had had just enough to drink to think that's pretty funny. I'm going to do that again. So it's like I walk around the room and come right back. And go, Hi, Dick. You know, I think it's a high secretary Cheney. I'm Dick. You know, and now it's clearly a joke. You know, and he, you know he kind of went along with it that time. And I did it two more times way more times than I should have. And I'm sure he was thinking, why didn't I bring a sniper, you know, to this, <laughs> to this event? So that was pretty embarrassing, and I'm sure I know that Secretary Cheney is probably listening, or Vice President Cheney now, listening, um, and I apologize to him and to the horse I painted red. Could have been worse. I could have painted uh, Secretary of Defense Cheney red. That would have been, whoa. Well, that would have been really serious.
0: Uh, he can put the horse on a drone, or maybe the horse can oh, drive he, a drone to he, attack you. He could have shot me with a quail gun or whatever it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. I've been speaking with Dave Barry. His new book is Live Right and Find Happiness, although beer is much faster. Thank you for joining me, Dave.
1: Thank you. And this was transformational, transformational for me.